Hi, this is Amanda Dolan and welcome to the Mental Society. Today I am joined by Dr. Rebecca Allen um, and Dr. Allen has authored papers and researched everything from sleep and memory consolidation as well as the quality of life for individuals with multiple sclerosis or MS. She's um, authored a chapter on sleep and sleep disorders for the Harvard textbook, Neuropsychiatry and Behavioral Neurology, Principles and Practice, was um, published in 2020. And her main clinical interest is neuropsychiatry um, and lots of the cognitive behavioral manifestations of neurodegenerative diseases, dementia, MS, epilepsy, stroke, brain tumors, and 5 million other things. Um, and one of the things you really specialize in is um, ECT or electroconvulsive therapy, which many people would call electroshock therapy probably would be what many people think of, but that is not hopefully what it not, is. Hopefully not. In in animal studies, it's electroshock. In humans, it's electroconvulsive so, therapy. And so like if we're talking about like, you know, I, I kind of mentioned to you that I had spoken with my psychiatrist about um, ECT. And what, when I think of it, I think of what, you know, the videos that I saw from the fifties and sixties, even all the way, you know, to like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, right. And that having to be held down and a full body, you know, tensing up of all the muscles, we hear that like bones are broken and shoulders dislocated but I don't think that's what it's like anymore. Not for a really long time, but just addressing one flew over the cuckoo's nest, you know, head on. I actually love that movie. I think it's like a really great, beautiful piece of drama. I love the play. One thing that's problematic in terms of people taking away anything from it, you know, about psychiatry in general, is that they did the ECT and the frontal lobotomy really close together time-wise in the movie. And so when you're thinking back, you saw it five or 10 years ago, it's really easy to equate the two, but they're not even remotely similar. Um, And you certainly wouldn't get anything like a lobotomy anymore, not for a really long time. Um, So, uh, and, and it never worked anyway, right? So the ECT though, given that reputation, given the Scientologists, which, uh, have a lot of these sort of anti-ECT websites where they show the leather straps and mm-hmm. they they are very anti-psychiatry as a religion and a very yes. large religion at this point. And they have a lot of advocacy in that regard. Um, ECT, we wouldn't do it at all if it didn't work really, really well, right? right? It is hard to do it. It is hard to provide ECT and we do it because it works for no other reason, right? Um, it, so ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, has been around for a really long time. And despite what people say or what you hear, it's worked that whole time. Not in everyone, not all the time, but ECT did work. It was efficacious. Um, Sylvia Plath, when she wrote her book about her experience as a mental health patient, she got ECT and it actually worked. And then when she committed suicide, she hadn't had it. Right. So the reputation is not very well deserved in terms of efficacy or in terms of uh, social control so much. Um, Doesn't work for that, by the way. The reputation with the whole body clenching with physical risk, broken bones, that was Mm -hmm. actually the at one time, certainly, 100%. So there was a time in ECT's history when people needed x-rays right after treatment in order to make sure that there was no physical injury. That hasn't been the case pretty much since the advent of anesthesia and the use of anesthesia for ECT. So electroconvulsive therapy now, and for decades, decades at this point, has been done under full anesthesia where a person is given a medication to put them to sleep, the same medications that we use for anything else, you know, in an operating room to go to sleep for a procedure. And then a second medication to make their muscles relax so that they do not shake. So ideally, ECT is extremely undramatic to watch, kind of boring. So a person, um, it rolls into the 
room after having checked in with the nursing staff, not eaten mm-hmm. for eight hours, not drank anything for two hours. Um, they get the IV put in their arm and have a, a liquid drip like you normally would do for anybody that, you know, is coming in mm-hmm. dehydrated, right? Um, and the, they are connected to all of the normal monitoring equipment that any anesthesiologist uses for any procedure. So a blood pressure cuff, the stickers on the chest that measure the heart rhythms, um, and a thing on the finger that measures oxygen level in the blood. In addition, for ECT, we put two uh, stickers, the same as the ones we use for the heart. We put two okay. stickers on the forehead and behind the ear. And uh, then uh, on the clavicle, on the collarbone. And that is how we get a printout of the brain's experience of the seizure, the brain waves from um, one set of these stickers gives us the brain waves from the right hemisphere. The other Mm -hmm. set of these stickers gives us the brain waves from the left hemisphere. And that's called EEG, electroencephalogram. So when a person comes into the treatment room, there's two doctors in the room, an anesthesiologist and a psychiatrist, and then there's a nurse. And then in my program and many programs, actually, there might be somebody learning. So a a new doctor um, who is a few years out of medical school, but not independent yet. Mm -hmm. Um, Then uh, in my program, a person is in the treatment room for about 20 minutes total. The first six, seven minutes of that is conversation. You know, do you, the first treatment, do you have any questions? I'm going to show you the bite block that we use to protect your teeth. I'm going to show you the leads that we use to send the stimulus into your brain. Do you have any questions? You know, that kind of thing. For subsequent treatments, second treatment, third treatment, fourth, we're asking how did the last treatment go? Did you have any issues and side effects? If they say had a headache or they had nausea, we can add medications at that treatment in mm-hmm. order to help address those things so they don't get it again. Um, then when um, we are finished with the conversation, the anesthesiologist gives the sleeping medicine through the IV um, and the sleeping medicine, its main side effect later can be nausea. Most people yeah. don't get nausea. If they do, we treat it, right? Um, and then the muscle relaxant, um, which is usually succinylcholine, and that okay. can have a side effect um, feeling sore later because succinylcholine, it is going through and actively relaxing all of your muscles, and that can make you feel sore. Interestingly, at treatment two or three or four, you don't feel sore anymore because your body gets used to that drug and, and it doesn't have the same, uh, the same side effect with that. So after the sleeping medicine and the muscle relaxant are in, then the psychiatrist goes to the patient's head, puts the settings into the machine, holds the leads on the head and pushes the button. And we control how we start the seizure, the therapeutic seizure. We Mm -hmm. control how we send the electricity in, like where, uh, whether we send it in with right unilateral lead placement. So only putting the leads on the right side or by temporal lead placement where we have one lead on each side of the forehead. Um, And we control the, you know, the dose, like how long is the stimulus delivered? Eight seconds is the longest, Um, how much? The, The highest dose we use for ECT 576 millicoulombs would light a 60 watt light bulb for um, 0.01 seconds. Um, so that's not a lot of, that's not nearly as much electricity as I imagine that it would be. 0.1 seconds, not 0.01. 0.1 seconds. That's nothing. Right. And that was a, that was a pretty interesting paper where somebody calculated that out. Um, so very, very little, and that's all it takes and uh, we, when we start, we, we send the stimulus, the, the tiny bit of electricity into the brain, and then the brain does its thing. The brain has the seizure. And we're watching the patient, obviously, and we're also watching the output from the ECT machine, which is the brain waves. And we're looking for a pattern of brain waves, mm-hmm. you know, looking like this at the beginning and like this in the middle and like this toward the end. And we want a pretty sudden stop. Um, and we joke that it is the only time in medicine you ever want flatline, right? But uh, at the end of an ECT treatment, that sudden stop and the 
the post-seizure suppression, post-ictal suppression, it's called, where you get a surge of the uh, molecules in your brain that are sort of the calming down side of things. So mm -hmm. GABA is what it's called. Um, uh, that is really associated uh, with the outcome, with uh, response to ECT. So, and then um, the person is only uh, asleep, fully asleep for about 10 minutes and they start to wake up, move around on their own, breathe on their own. When, when you're under full anesthesia, the anesthesiologist is breathing for you right. with bag masking usually because it's such a short procedure, but they have all the stuff there to intubate if they need to, they like almost never need to. And um, so a person doesn't remember waking up in the treatment room, but they remember waking up in the recovery area where they're monitored, you know, with a nurse, it's right. just theirs. So one-to-one -one and in recovery area for about 20 minutes. Um, and then they go home. So that is sort of the beginning to end experience. Uh, if everything is running on time, that takes about 90 minutes. I tell people to expect two hours from walking in to walking out. Um, and, and that's it. And it looks very not exciting actually. And it doesn't, it's not a like one and done then, right? Like it's multiple. It is a course. Exactly. Yeah. So if a person is in a really bad depression, which is when we do this, we don't do ECT. If somebody has a history of depression and is trying to you know, cure it, it's not a cure. It's a treatment for an active bad episode of depression. We expect a person is going to need 12 to 15 treatments. You see all over the internet, eight to 12 treatments, that's everywhere on the internet. That is old information. When ECT programs used to mostly do the higher dose, uh, stronger version of ECT, where uh, which is called bitemporal, where you put one lead on each side of the head, um, that results in shorter treatment courses because it's a stronger treatment, but it also has more thinking and memory side effects, which we can absolutely talk about, um, than the right unilateral lead placement, which is newer, where you put both leads on the right side of the brain, and then the seizure spreads from right to left, but because you are only stimulating on the right side, the right side gets more of the treatment and the right side of your brain is more involved in visuospatial processing. Um, the left side of your brain is more involved in um, some of the uh, working memory, explicit memory, like meaning events right. and uh, language. So people notice cognitive side effects from the left more than they notice cognitive side effects from the right. So when stimulating on the right, we are making the experience you know, more tolerable, easier. If a person doesn't respond to right unilateral, like we do six treatments and there's just no movement, no benefit, we start talking about, do you wanna switch to the stronger version? Do you wanna turn up the dose and stay with right unilateral or do you wanna switch to the, the stronger bitemporal version? Anything we do to make ECT stronger has a higher chance of side effects. So we start with a less strong version and work our way up from there if we need to. I think that's the way, right? Most medications or treatments. Exactly. Or yeah. I mean, most doctors, right, want to start as little as possible and work up. And so, you know, and it's about personal choice too. We have some people who are maybe coming from out of state or who are so ill that right unilateral isn't worth the risk of, you know, what if it doesn't work and right. we've wasted two weeks, right? So we have some people who are so ill that we say, we really think we should start with bitemporal. Um, and we have some people who choose to because they want to have fewer treatments and they want to get it done, right? Um, yeah. And so, you know, I know like for me with my bipolar, it took a while to get on the right medication and become pretty stable. But this is often like when medications are not doing the whole job that, that needs to be done because exactly. medication is the first, like that's typically the first course of action or. Unless it's like an emergency. Yes. 
But realistically, even if it's a situation where ECT should be the thing you go to, maybe second Mm -hmm. or third, it tends to be something that people do much farther down the line, even in acute situations, just because the access to ECT is so poor. There aren't enough programs. The programs that exist aren't big enough. So accessing ECT is actually um, difficult. And that's, I think that's true for mental health care, period. Um, seen some, some studies that say like, I think we're at 37% of the needed practitioners to fully meet the mental health needs of our country. Um, which makes me a little angry as someone with like mental health things. Um, it's like when, well, first you said like 12 to 15 treatments. So how quickly do those come back to back? Is that every day or? Two or three times a week and two times a week is a little bit more European because they have better work leave policies and better public transportation. So people can afford to do ECT for more weeks and right. two times a week is a little gentler, fewer, less risk of side effects. Um, three times a week is more American and, and what most Americans choose to do uh, because it's a shorter course overall, but there are more cognitive side effects when you're doing the treatments, Mm -hmm. um, more of them close together. If you are doing ECT less than twice a week, we wouldn't consider that an intensive course where we're trying to get you better. We would consider that trying to prevent you from relapsing. So that would be- More of a maintenance or a- a Taper and maintenance after an intensive course is once Mm -hmm. a week or less. So then when you said like, you know, the more American is- the three times. So how much time is needed off of work when you're getting this treatment? Or, And that brings us right to the cognitive side effects, because the answer there is it depends on what you do for work. So ECT, during an intensive course, you have cognitive side effects that are worsening over the course of treatment. Right. So you have more cognitive side effects after treatment five or treatment eight or treatment 12 than you did after treatment two or three. And this varies a lot. You know, I see patients who have had 12, 13 treatments and they say, you overwarned me, Dr. Allen, I don't have any cognitive side effects, I'm fine. I have other people who uh, have more cognitive side effects than they expected and are um, really bothered, disturbed by it. When a person is getting ECT, that is when the cognitive side effects are the worst. Um, And most domains of cognition, things that we can test with pencil and paper tests or with computer thinking and memory tests do actually go down with ECT. So it isn't just short-term memory. It's also your visuospatial function, meaning if you're a gamer, your ability to um, navigate in a virtual world or your ability to do puzzles, it also affects your ability to drive. So there is a driving restriction with ECT, uh, the rule in our program, and I, I think this is a pretty common rule, any week that you have more than one ECT treatment, you cannot drive that entire week. So mm-hmm. we expect people will go four to six weeks with no driving whatsoever. Um, also processing speed, which of course affects driving too. Mm-hmm. And then what people notice the most is difficulty with remembering recent things, remembering things that they did in the past few days, the past few weeks, remembering what they're supposed to do tomorrow. And then there can be difficulty retrieving some older memories that tends to come back. People do not tend to lose old memories. And if they do, there's usually something else going on besides just ECT. So history of uh, drug or alcohol abuse, history of um, dissociation, meaning feeling outside of yourself, separate from yourself, periods where you feel like you can't remember what happened. Um, History of trauma, uh, either mental, terrible things that happened to you or physical head trauma. Those are all risk factors for having cognitive side effects that are beyond the average, the norm. So we expect that all of these cognitive side effects, everything we can measure with a pencil and paper test or with a computer test gets back to the person's normal before ECT or even better than normal because depression is not great for your cognition no, either. It's not. Frankly. Um, 
by uh, a few weeks to a few months after the ECT course. And there's lots of studies out there on this. So many studies with formal cognitive testing before and after ECT that all show the same thing. Um, six months after ECT is where a lot of these studies did their like retesting. So we have tons of data that says by six months, people are either as good as or better than where they started. What you might lose that is permanent is some memories from recent months before the ECT course. So if you get ECT in January, you might forget Christmas, Thanksgiving, Halloween, right? Um, you might forget things that you would normally trust yourself to remember. Our brains are forgetting most of the things most of the time, right? It's much easier right. to remember what you had for breakfast this morning than last Friday uh, for a reason. There, there isn't space, yeah. you don't need it. Um, during ECT, the hippocampus, the part of the brain that actually is taking sort of temporary memories and, and processing and moving it into long-term storage, that is, a, that is rough enough that a neuroscientist would say it's inaccurate, but, but close enough for this purpose of explaining mm -hmm. the hippocampus's significance. Um, a hippocamp the hippocampus is reforming a little bit. It's growing new cells right. during ECT and new connections. And... Um, probably while that is happening, it's not doing its job as well. Uh, that's one sort of theory or explanation for what's going on. But during the ECT course, you're not forming new memories as well as you usually would. And things that are recent that are sort of loosely held are more likely to be lost, gone. Where people find this the most disturbing is if they went on a weekend trip or a vacation within the three, four, six months before ECT and they forget it. Or if they were told something about someone else that should be significant um, and then they forget that they heard that information. You're much more likely to forget things that you were told or heard about than to forget things that happened to you. And you're more likely to forget things that are recent than things that are farther back. And would you consider this a life-saving like medical treatment? 100%. Oh my gosh, 100%. So the bread and butter in my practice is severe treatment resistant depression where people or bipolar depression where people have tried a lot of different things and maybe they've gotten better at some point but they're not better when we see them really. Right. And you have to always weigh the benefits of something against the downsides. And there are downsides to ECT. I mean, absolutely. And I don't think there should be sugar coating of that. I think it's very exaggerated in a lot of the things that you see. Right, it sounds or, like it. Or grossly inaccurate. But you have to be able to weigh what is the worst thing that could happen with ECT in terms of my cognition memory side effects with what if I die from suicide? Um, which is the case for many people we are treating with ECT. Also, even if they're not feeling like they want to, you know, do something to make themselves die, there is a level of suffering that is intolerable where you're so bad, you can't function in your family, you can't work, you're not enjoying anything, your self-care might be impaired. Some people that we treat are in the hospital when we're treating them. They're, they're admitted to an inpatient psychiatric unit. There are also people who have conditions other than depression who need ECT. Catatonia is one of them. Um, and I think if you're, if you're looking at, this is now an old reference, but if you're looking at pop culture representation of catatonia, they did a decent job in the Robin Williams movie, Awakenings. Oh, when they give the medicine and then they can catch the ball or the mute, was it the music right. that comes on and they... It's been a long time. Yeah. And so catatonia isn't, I would think less about the sort of how they responded to the drug in that movie and more how they looked at the beginning. And that is what right. catatonia very often looks like. A person is just either if they're inappropriately responsive, like repeating back to you what you just said to them or repeating the same thing over and over or just really not responsive at all. Um, and they might have muscles that are stiff and in certain uh, positions, waxy flexibility is the sort of technical right. description, or they might have something called the pillow sign, where if you pull a pillow out from under their head when they're lying down, the head stays up. Just these, these very um, abnormal physical and mental uh, 
clusters of symptoms that go together that respond really well either to high dose benzodiazepines, which usually is what's tried first. That's like Ativan, right? Clonopin, mm-hmm. that's benzodiazepines or ECT, which works 90% of the time. I mean, really, really successful treatment for catatonium. We also have people coming in for hearing voices for schizophrenia. That's much rarer um, in the US than it is in um, Mm -hmm. like say third world countries where there's very little ECT. The ECT programs they have will be pretty much all people with schizophrenia because that's the, the mental illness that nobody can ignore right? Mm -hmm. People can ignore depression. They shouldn't, but they can, right? In our country, ECT is more common for mood disorders than for um, psychosis. I I think about is, so like, I'm thinking about like for myself as an individual with bipolar two. So, um, and you talked about like that, you know, not being able to take care of yourself. And I still think of the time when I couldn't get out of bed well for so long that I actually had to go to my hairstylist and have her brush out the knot of hair in the back of my head because I hadn't washed my hair. I hadn't showered. And, you know, it's, um, so in that kind of case, I wasn't on medication, but if I was on medication and that was where I was at, that still not able to get out of bed, not being able to interact with my family in any meaningful way, that's when like ECT might come in. Yeah. And also the, up the other end of bipolar disorder, which with bipolar two, you probably didn't have as bad a manifestation of this as as people do with bipolar one, but I have had patients who get into a manic episode and with mania, unlike with depression, insight tends to be more impaired people don't necessarily recognize that they're in a manic episode or that anything is wrong. So they will sometimes stop their medications. So in that case, getting them back on medication, you would try, you might not succeed. If they end up being hospitalized, you would think about ECT. Okay. Um, yeah. And that's, ECT works for mania too. Yeah. Oh, I, I was not aware of that. So that's interesting bit of information, but I think that that was something you mentioned was when people start to feel better, sometimes they stop their medication. So can we just like have a moment of don't stop your medication without talking to your doctor first? Yes. And I will say the rule of thumb is if you have an episode of depression, that's your first ever episode of depression. Like you were fine, 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 no mental health problems. And you get depressed. It lasts a few months. You get on a medication, you get better you should stay on that medication for at least a year. Some people will say two years, the least I've heard in terms of an official recommendation consensus data-based kind of agreement is mm-hmm. a year. Okay. If you have had repeated episodes of depression or if the episode you had was so bad that you were feeling like you wanted to do something to end your life or you ended up in the hospital, the recommendation for how long to stay on meds is even longer than that, perhaps even in your entire life. The kind of people that I see are either people who are generally not seeking ECT, but seeking transcranial magnetic stimulation or seeking ketamine treatment, talk who about are, which we can talk about, but, the, but who are like against medication or have had side effects to a lot of medications. And so they want to try something that's, that's different. Or with ECT, it tends to be people that are very aware that they have a chronic mental illness are not the kind of person that would suddenly stop their meds usually. And ECT is, is the next thing to try because it's so bad. Yeah. And, you know, I I just want to, one more time, like psychiatric, like psychotropic meds, when you get off them, it's important to talk to your doctor because you've got a taper, you might have serious side effects of getting off that medicine. I just, I always think that's important because stopping a medication like that can be really dangerous. Well, it depends on the the medicine. Yeah. I would say that for, for standard antidepressants, there is, there has been, um, some highly publicized information about withdrawal that is very, very much exaggerated and not consistent 
at all, at all with, with experienced psychiatrists, um, what so, we observe in practice. The, the impetus for, for doing that, for saying antidepressants do harm, antidepressants lead to withdrawal, is coming from a place of people being very concerned that antidepressants are being overused. That's the, the generous, positive way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is that there's a huge stigma in mental health. This idea that you shouldn't have to have a medication to help you not be depressed, that depression is an indulgence in feeling sad. And if you did the right things, you could just not be depressed. And that is also why we have a shortage of mental health uh, providers, psychiatrists, therapists, mid-level providers like uh, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, there's a shortage across the board because uh, mental health is very undervalued. It's very under reimbursed. So every, yeah. And well, yes, that, and, and I think, um, you know, you talked about the, well, let me share a story. I went, I go to Christian, go to church. I went to a different church than my normal one to go with a friend and someone came up to me and I was telling a little bit about my story because part of my, like, you know, when I was suicidal, I was laying in bed and I heard a voice and not in a psychotic voice way, but uh, I'm not, it said, I'm not done with you yet. That was the only voice I heard. And then I went and got like found treatment. And so I was sharing this with someone and they were like, oh, wait. You know, if you just prayed more and you asked God to heal you, you could get off of your medication. And, and that's what God wants from you is to not be on medication. And my response there are to them, entire religions that believe that, you know, well, the Christian scientists and the Scientologists. Well, and my response to that person was, you know, I believe that God gave the scientists and the doctors the knowledge and the tools and the resources to create these medications that save my life. So that's how I choose to look at it. That may not work for everyone, but. Do you think that, um, we can talk about that too, but do you think uh, that she would have said the same thing if you'd said you'd had skin cancer? I'm sure there would have been, well, we need to pray, but make sure you take your treatment. Like we'll pray that the doctors provide the right treatment, the most efficient treatment. Would have been different. This is the stigma. Uh, this is this is giving people the benefit of the doubt. I think it's coming from a place of people want to believe that they have control. They have control over their identity. They have control over their brain. They have control over who they are. They have control over their emotions. And the existence of mental illness is very threatening to that notion. If somebody can become very depressed and it's not because something happened to them or because they right. did something or because they're not doing something, it's a really, really scary idea. But the reality is, is that what roughly 20% of people experience some mental illness in their life and 5% have a serious mental illness that long last. It's very common. Right? And so yeah. that's more than, you know, diabetes probably. I mean, I don't have numbers for that, but type one diabetes, which, uh, you know, is I don't, I don't have numbers for that either. I don't know. I'm just, I'm wondering, or, you know, and mental illness is so, so common and it's not a new problem or a modern problem or a modern day indulgence. Well, mental illness has been around forever. Well, yeah. You know, it's funny when I was doing my research on ECT, I found this, that Benjamin Franklin wrote um, that electrostatic, an electrostatic machine cured a woman of hysterical fits. So if Benjamin Franklin, you know, yeah literally centuries ago saw benefits of this right i mean of course like hysteria and women there's a whole like it's a name that got slapped on a lot of things that we would nowadays still call mental illness for the most part but we would call it something else right so let's i want to like take a minute with the tms which is transcranial magnetic stimulation did i get that right okay yes, you did. yeah um and I have a, a good friend that I, this was probably two or three years ago now. Um, and I think it was fairly new when it, when she was having it. And I know that for her, her insurance didn't cover it at the time. Don't know if it would now, but 
she thinks, I mean, I know she went for a number of treatments and then she goes back kind of for a tune-up or a, you know, sure. Um, but she says that it, she feels like it almost cured her. I know that she's not on medication right now with it. So, and I know that that's one of your, yeah, like, that's yes. one of your things. Yes. So what, how is that different than from ECT? Because I guess one's magnetic, well, one's electric, or, but. The easy answer to that is everything is different. The only thing they have in common is that they're stimulating the brain in an attempt to treat similar conditions like depression. Everything else is different. With um, ECT in severe treatment resistant depression, it works in about eight out of 10 people. And by works, I mean, it has a really significant positive effect. Mm-hmm. And of those eight, half of them, the, the depression is gone. The other half, the depression is really, really much better, but eight out of 10 for ECT, right? That's why we do it. For TMS, for depression, it's closer to six out of 10. And what I, what I like to tell patients is that TMS is not one thing. TMS is a tool. So transcranial magnetic stimulation is a tool. You can use it for research and you can use it for many different clinical uh, applications, depending upon what coil you're using, where you put it on the brain, how you send the pulses through the coil. So, so it's a tool. And when you say TMS works for this or doesn't work for that, it's, so it's, like saying, it's like saying, well, drugs work for this or drugs don't work for that. And you got to ask, well, which drug are you talking about? Right. So it's the same idea with TMS, which protocol are you talking about? So for um, just overview, TMS is pulsing electricity through uh, coils, tightly wound circles, coils of wire. And when the electricity is pulsed through the coil, that creates a magnetic field perpendicular to the electrical current. And that's Faraday's law. There's this relationship between electricity and magnetism, and that's what TMS is doing. The most common type of coil looks like a number eight. So we call it a figure of eight coil, where there's two circles of wires that overlap in the middle. And so we send the electricity into the coils and pulses. And because the electricity has to be fluctuating to create that magnetic field, right? So when we treat depression, we put a coil over the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is a fancy way of saying the left side kind of top of the forehead, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the measurement of it's a little more precise, but that's approximately right. what we're talking about, which is a frontal executive function um, nice. part of the brain. And we are sending the pulses through the coil quickly, generally 3000 in a session at a rate of 10 per second, 10 Hertz. And there are different protocols with one kind of coil. The the rate is actually 18 Hertz. With the figure of eight, the rate is usually 10 Hertz. There are some papers out there that have published five Hertz. So just acknowledging there's variability, this is like the standard, most commonly used protocol. And we, we send the pulses in these trains with pauses. So a bunch of pulses in a row, pause, bunch of pulses in a row, pause. The whole treatment lasts about 18 minutes. Okay. We schedule generally for half an hour for, you know, getting in there, sitting down, right. getting in place, but the stimulation is about 18 minutes. And a standard TMS course is once a day for 30 treatments in a row generally followed by a taper where you do three treatments one week, then two the next week, then one the third week. And then with TMS, we generally stop. So unlike with ECT, where we encourage people to do taper and maintenance for Mm -hmm. six months after an intensive course with TMS, the standard of care right now is actually to do the intensive course and stop and watch and wait. Six out of 10 people respond. And of those six, three of them approximately, will still be well a year later with needing no TMS or uh, in the meantime. So the relapse rate in that first year after an intensive TMS course is uh, 50 around 
Yeah. And the data varies. I mean, it depends on which study you look at and you can cherry pick one that's really high or cherry pick one that's really low. The meta-analysis, meaning like sort of taking all the data and kind of trying to put it together, uh, that was published a few years ago that I think did a really good job of this. It it ended up being about half and half. Um, And so with TMS works well for someone, does that mean, I don't necessarily want to say cured, but is there still a need for medication in that 50% that's staying? Yeah, it depends. So first of all, we don't recommend people make medication changes right before a TMS course because it gets messy. Then we don't know if a person gets better, what it was. And you really want to know if TMS worked for you because you want to know if you should invest in it again. And even if your insurance is covering every penny of it, which usually is not. It's a lot of time. If It's it's a lot of time, so you want to know if you if you need to put that time in again. So a clean trial of TMS would be really no medication changes right before, no medication changes during, trying to get the appointments at a similar time of day. Because just like with ECT, where I actually didn't go through this, but at the first treatment, we figure out what your dose should be um, by doing a, a titration. With TMS, the first treatment you come in for, we also are figuring out what your dose should be. And what your dose should be depends on factors like how much you sleep, how much coffee you've had, what time of day it is. These usually are things that, and what medications you're on that are like small changes. Um, but um, you you don't want to um, be at the wrong dose because it might not work as well. Mm-hmm. So TMS, by the way, is not done in a hospital. It's, there's no anesthesiologist involved. Generally. You're kind of just sitting there with the machine Exactly. In our office, we use dental chairs just because they're really flexible in positioning Uh and pretty comfortable. Um, But you can use any chair, really. And with uh, with TMS, you're really it can be done in an office building. Right. There's no downtime with that either. Right. I mean, as in like there should be no cognitive side effects whatsoever. And. There are even studies using this same protocol or really similar in people with early Alzheimer's or mild cognitive impairment that have shown some improvement in thinking and memory with this protocol. The data isn't strong enough for people to generally be offering this clinically in a lot of places, but the papers are really interesting. So if anything, it should be pro-cognitive. That said, there's always that you know one in 200 people that have something unusual, but super, super rare. Um, and then goes away immediately when we stop the TMS. Right. Right. And so, yeah. With all of this, it's really about also informed consent, like making sure the patient knows the risks and the benefits. And, and we do not include anything about thinking and memory in our informed consent because it, in studies, it is not a thing. Right. If anything, people get better with their thinking and memory, not worse. And there's there's no anesthesia. You're awake. You're sitting in an office in a chair for 18 minutes. Right. Obviously, there are side effects or potential. But in this case, there's much lower. So much lower. I mean, not even comparable to ECT. Right. But it's a different kind of person who's looking at this versus looking at ECT. It's severity Mm -hmm. level. It's urgency. It's preference, right? It's diagnosis too. So TMS right now is not covered by almost any insurance plans. It's not covered for bipolar depression. Uh So people with bipolar disorder, very unfortunately coming in for treatment have fewer options than people with unipolar depression who've never had a hypomania or a mania. Uh, TMS really does not in, in a person, let's say you do use it for bipolar depression, it does not increase the risk of flipping to mania any more than anything else mm-hmm. does. So that was a concern early on that just did not pan out with studies looking at that carefully. It also has very little in the way of side effects otherwise. So a headache is the main one. And that's because it feels like a tapping on your head. So a feeling of tapping on your head for 18 minutes is at least at first for a lot of people, be not, not the most comfortable. Yeah. People get used to it really by treatment three or treatment four, and then have no issue after that. Generally it depends though. There are some people who have like chronic pain conditions where they're just kind of already primed for 
pain and and the and it's a little bit less tolerable sometimes. Also, people with a history um, of not history, not like remote history, but medical history, meaning things that have happened to you medically anytime before now, who have uh, frequent migraines. I've had a few in the past five years that I've been doing this um, who have stopped TMS because they got more frequent migraines during TMS. Ironically, though, there are other ways of using the same machine that prevent headaches, right? Just putting it on a different place and different protocol, right? There's so many things in the medical world, right? Because it, I mean, it's yeah. practicing medicine, right? Like you don't know always exactly what is going to happen because we're all different and we're all. Yes. And, and you have to keep up with the literature. You have to like read the articles that are coming out in order to know, am I still doing the right thing? And then you have to be critical of those articles because you don't want something to come out that was, you know, no control group, 30 people. Right. And then say, wow, now I need to change what I'm doing. That isn't enough. So a physician a lot of our education is understanding how do we know what we know? How do we learn what we learn? And how do we look at this in a critical way in order to know what to do with this evidence and when? That is, I think, the key of why doctors, why physicians are in school for so long and a, and a difference between different numbers of years of training for different uh, professions. That's, that's something that physicians have in a way that is really hard to get with a shorter education. And, I think and it, yeah, it's important to understand, like you're a psychiatrist, but you need to understand how, like say, you know, the renal functioning is of someone because, right, there are some medications that might impact the kidneys or Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, and this is something that I think is not well understood. So I appreciate you asking about it, but one of my, the most important things that I do is understand most, I'm not going to say all ideally all, but most of the medical conditions that could look like something psychiatric or be contributing to psychiatric symptoms Right. And try and make sure that what I'm looking at really is primarily psychiatric, or even if it is primarily psychiatric, whether there's something physical, not brain physical, but body physical, that's contributing mm -hmm. to it, where we can do something about that too. So lots of brain tumors look like psychiatric illnesses, right. and meningitis can look like psychiatric illness, endocrine diseases, cancers can look like psychiatric illness. And if a person is trained only in mental illness and not in all of the other things that right. happen to the body or how everything else in the body works, then it's really easy to miss these things. And if you haven't done, you know, rotations in hospitals, in other fields of medicine, and you haven't seen any of this stuff, you haven't seen the neurological right. disorders. It's really hard to recognize something you've never seen. So that's why the education is so long. That's what it's all about. And so I frequently recommend people go to a sleep clinic because I catch, you know, maybe they have sleep apnea yeah. or more rarely, but still sometimes narcolepsy. Or I think, wow, that sounds more like you might be having seizures. Let's make sure you get a EEG in order to evaluate that and get in with neurology for an opinion or, whoa, this is Parkinson's, right? This isn't, right. this isn't schizophrenia. You know, so there's a lot of that, that is my, my job to, like, to do. Even like your thyroid not working correctly can look like depression or, right? Cause it makes I you slug it. Yeah. Um, I, I put together a couple of years ago, a, uh, with the Washington State Psychiatric Association, but I, I did the large chunk of here are medical diseases that can look psychiatric. And the list was really long, you know, really long list. Um, so. But I would, if, before we like, and sleep, sleep is something that I am passionate about. And I don't just mean, cause I enjoy resting. 
I've noticed for me, I, um, when I have a relapse or when I feel like I'm coming close to a relapse, um, sleep is the thing that I'm often missing out on. And I, when I talk to people, I'm like, get sleep. This, like, I can make up sleep on the weekend, so I'm not going to get it during the week. Or, you know, I've heard people, you know, that I'll sleep when I die. Sleep, like, you're going to die sooner if you don't sleep. I I believe yes, that on yes. some level. I mean, honestly, we could have done this entire interview about sleep, and it would have been just as interesting. But sleep is really underestimated in terms of importance. You spend a third of your life sleeping for very good reason. And what sleep does and how and why we sleep, incredibly fascinating. Also not completely known. And this is a this is a thing in, in expertise. The more you learn about something, the more you realize how much you don't know. People right. who know very little about a topic tend to think they know more about it than people who know a lot about the topic and think, oh, you know, actually there's so much more so I much. don't, right? The iceberg, with, right? It's exactly, you don't see what's under the water. So with sleep, there is a complexity to what your brain is doing. And I referred casually earlier to anesthesia as sleep. It's really not, not even close, not the same. What, what's happening in sleep is you're progressing through these different states of brain and body called sleep stages. And each sleep stage is different in terms of what your brain waves are doing, how much sugar your brain is using, so metabolism, how much your body is moving or not, heart rate, blood pressure, all of these things are varying right. in sleep. And we think at this point that there is good reason why we have different sleep stages and why we progress through them in a certain order, because these different sleep stages have different functions, different things that they do for us. So we know a lot of things that happen during sleep. It's, it's harder research-wise to pin it down to when, um, although there's valiant efforts and really creative studies. We think that emotional processing, like taking memories and deciding, do I, um, is this emotionally you know, important enough to me to remember, or do I get rid of this memory? Um, taking traumatic memories and dampening down the emotion associated with that and making it essentially fade appropriately mm. over time. Uh, these are all things that, that we know happen during sleep. One of the, one of my favorite studies is when a person remembers in, in this study, a person would remember a list of words um, before falling asleep. And an example would be uh, sill, curtains, blinds, glass, view. So you hear those words. And you, you dream think, about windows then? Well, not exactly. You think they're all, maybe, but you think they're all related to window, but the word window isn't on there. And before right. you go to sleep, because you're, you're memorizing this list, you actually uh, should know that window isn't on there. It wasn't one of the words you memorized. Uh, maybe you don't think about it, but but it's not there. And then the next day, when you're getting retested on that list, window is in there. You remember the word window because what your brain is doing is taking information and putting it together and creating insights or new ideas or uh, you know, putting things in a way that makes more sense to remember them going forward. Right. So it's much more efficient and helpful for your brain to remember the theme or the word window than to remember all of these different little words, right? And sleep. So the, the idea for the periodic table came to the creator of the periodic table in a dream. That's a very, <laughs> a very fun example. Well, and, and I think, you know, for me, I know that I need at a, the very minimum seven and a half hours of sleep. I don't know why it's that. I think it's right. It's a 90 minute sort of cycle in general, or does it, and it changes yeah. right as you get more into the sleep, like deeper or the more cycle. So, yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm getting it. I think I get where you're going. I do. So in the early part of the night, what a sleep cycle looks like is different than what it looks like right. later in the night. So you actually have going more time down into deeper stages of sleep early in the night, those first two cycles, 
And then the next two cycles, it's shallower. And that leads to this phenomenon sometimes of people who are depressed and sleeping really long hours and sleeping mm-hmm. well into the morning. And they get more and more dreaming as they go along because dreaming is one of the, the sort of shallower stages. So with, with sleep, I also just want to mention immune function is really impacted by sleep. There's these really good studies on giving somebody a vaccine and then testing um, how well this vaccine took in their system after sleep deprivation versus appropriate amount of sleep. And there's a big difference. So if you ever get a vaccine, please sleep well the night after. But I mean, I think, right, I've, I've heard, and in my experience too, like weight loss is impacted by your sleep. Usually appetite, metabolism. Yes. All of those things. And I think we also need to remember that, correct me if I'm wrong, but our brains use the, the vast majority, like use the majority of the calories that we consume in a day, unless you're super physically active, right? But if you're just sitting still doing nothing, your brain is going to be using the majority of your. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, the importance of sleep and how interesting sleep is, is just really underestimated. I I think it's because people don't remember sleep. It doesn't feel when they've woken up, like they've done anything. Have really have it's important. And I, and I think along with that, it's, well, I'm not doing anything like I'm missing out on something perhaps um, because you're not awake for it. You're not experiencing that thing, but it means you're not going to experience other things as richly perhaps as if you have that. The impact on mood, the impact on remembering things. I mean, yes, 100%. Your, the impact on your ability to regulate your emotions, right? It goes to mood, but even in people who don't have mood disorders, that's a thing. So people and cognition, and this, there's been great studies in physicians and doctors in training on sleep deprivation and how well uh, we do with speed-based thinking cognitive tasks Mm -hmm. after this much sleep deprivation and this much and this much. And the results are pretty shocking because insight into your loss of ability is poor. You think you're still doing as well, but you're not. So people who are chronically sleep deprived may think, well, this isn't an issue. You know, I'm doing fine, but they're not actually. So that's insight, you know, recognizing when there's a problem, right? So sleep, I, I am a firm believer that sleep, nutrition, and water or hydration are like one of the most, are maybe the three most important things for your health. Like that's a really solid place to start enough sleep, enough hydration and solid nutrition to nourish yourself. I think that's a great start. I I think there are lots of people who would debate what are like the three most important things, but I would tend to agree with you. Sleep, (laughs) hydration, nutrition. You know, you can't go wrong doing those things. Well, like none of those are going to harm you in any way. Um, So thank you so much for all of this information. And um, it's a lot, I'm sure, for people to take in. Uh, And then along with that, I would encourage people to go check out like what these treatments really look like in real life, do some Googling. And I'm not always a fan of Googling for all the things, but I actually found some really great information on, on what this looks like now. National Institutes of Health, Brown, Mayo Clinic, Clinical TMS Society, um, International Society of ECT and Neurostimulation. I mean, there are reliable, good websites okay. with information. Well, I have a website, which is my practice's website, seattlentc.com. We also have information. Um, so there are reliable sources. What I would be very wary of is message boards um, or anything that's like, you know, patient group advocacy, right. you know, about X, the name of the group might not say against X, but there's a lot of that out there. And a lot of them are Scientology backed. So I think that it's, it's really important to seek 
expertise because that's what we're here for. I mean, that's what doctors do is we educate people about what's out there, the pros and cons. We try hard. I try hard not to tell people what to do, right? That's not our decision. That's not. You want them to make that decision based on their needs and what will work best for them or they've thought. Right. It's a, it's, if anything, a joint decision, but I say more, it's a patient decision. We provide information so that you can decide what is best for you. So I know some people sometimes, including my own parents, sadly, who say they're, they don't want to go to a doctor because all he's going to do is offer me X or all that she's going to do is say Y. Don't assume, right? You don't know what you don't know. And if a doctor says something you don't like, you don't have to do it. Right. It's just questions. That's what you're like. If you don't, if you're uncertain, ask questions. Um, So I'm going to, I'm going to get like links to these, um, the National Institute of Health, Brown, Mayo Clinic, all of those, um, and include them in the show notes so that you can go find really solid science based um, information uh, because that is what is important, right? Sticking to science. Um, and research. So Dr. Allen, thank you so much for all the information. And I I learned a lot and I hope that um, my listeners did as well. So thanks again for that. Thank you for for having me, Amanda. Um, And then with that, we've reached the end of the episode. Um, Thank you for listening and learning about um, mental health and society. Now go out and open a conversation and discover how mental health is experienced in your world. Uh, you can find more episodes of the Mental Society, all the places you can find your po- your favorite podcast. And don't forget to subscribe. And remember that you are not alone in your struggles, that hope and help are all around you. And until next time, wishing you good health, mental and otherwise. This is Amanda Dolan.